And let's open with a word of prayer. Father, truly, this morning we rejoice at your grace, which is so glorious, even as we have just sung. It's by the grace of God that you have reached out to us, that you have sent your Son for us. It's the grace of God that you have loved us. It's the grace of God that you have saved us. It's by the grace of God that you continue to work in us for your glory. Father, we pray this morning, even as we turn our attention to this passage, that you would take away distractions, that we'd be able to focus in on the truth of your word, that your spirit would work for your glory in each and every one of our lives, that I would with clarity and boldness present the truth of the word of God, and that you would be lifted up. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Twenty twenty has been a very long year. Do you remember at the beginning of twenty twenty the wildfires in Australia that were all over the news? We've all have forgotten about them. It seemed to be the biggest deal at the time, and yet now it seems like that was ten years ago. We have to remind ourselves of what has actually happened this year because it's been such a long, unique year. We come to our passage this morning in John 6. It's kind of the same thing. We need to remind ourselves what is going on here in John 6 because this, there is so much that has gone on in this chapter, which really covers about two days that it's, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget where we've been, what has happened. And so as you back up to the beginning of John chapter 6, we have the, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's, as it's famously called. And so where are we? Jesus and his disciples have come back into the area of uh, Galilee. They're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, on the hills there, and this crowd, this large crowd that people estimate up to fifteen to 20,000 people have followed them out there. They have this problem, there's not enough food. So if you remember what happens, Jesus asks his disciples, what are we going to do? But Jesus already knows what he's going to do. And Jesus takes a small lunch of a little boy and feeds this crowd of, of 20,000 people with it. After that, Jesus sends his disciples away. They get into the boat that they came on, and they leave. And Jesus goes alone into the mountains by himself. The crowd sees this. Then we have the passage where Jesus walks on the water later that night. In the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, he comes walking calmly out in the ocean, gets in the boat with his disciples, reminds them of who he is, and then miraculously, safely delivers them to their destination. The next morning, this crowd realizes we saw the disciples leave. We saw Jesus go into the mountains. And yet we've been sitting here all day and he's not come out. Apparently, Jesus has left as well. And so after a certain amount of time, they leave to go and to seek Jesus. They're looking for him. Eventually, they find him in Capernaum. You don't know how much of this crowd is left, but, but there's a large portion of this crowd who has searched for him. And now they found him. 
You may remember last week as we covered this section. It's one day after the feeding of the 5,000. They find him at Capernaum. They ask, well, how did you get here? Jesus isn't concerned about that, though. He doesn't even answer their question and says, instead, he confronts the issue of their hearts. If you remember, he says, you're not seeking me for the right reasons. You're not seeking me because of the, the works which I did, because of the sign which, when rightly understood, should have pointed you to who I am. Instead, you're seeking me for what you can get out of me. You're interested in who I am. You're interested in what I can do. He goes on to confront them. Don't labor for bread which perishes. Labor for that which lasts to eternal life which the Father will give you. They misunderstand. And so eventually Jesus very plainly says, I am the bread of life. We come to our passage in this morning. As we work through this, we'll see the Jews question. Jesus responds. The Jews quarrel. And Jesus continues. It's not a very... Uh, creative outline, but it follows the passage, and that's exactly what the passage does. It's a back and forth. It's a conversation. And so the first thing we see is that the Jews question. And we see that in verses 41 to 42. And it starts here. It says, the Jews then. After all this that we've just reviewed, all this that has happened in John chapter 6 up to this point, all this that has happened in really one and a half to two days. At this point then, how are they going to respond to Jesus? They've, they've brought their questions and Jesus has, has come back and he said, I am the bread of life. So the question coming to this passage this morning is, will they believe? How will they respond? And it starts out, the Jews then, after Jesus has made this amazing pronouncement, the Jews then complained about him. How very Jewish of them. They complain. What's funny is that, that last week, funny is probably not the right word, what is ironic is that last week in our passage, they basically say, when Jesus says, you need to believe in me, and they say, what? They say, well, who are you that we should believe in you? Give us a sign. Moses gave us manna. He fed the whole nation. What can you do? You're not worthy of our belief yet. Can you do something greater than that? And yet what we see here is that just like their forefathers who complained both before they got manna and after God graciously gave them manna, so now before the Savior that has graciously been provided by God, once again, they are complaining just like their forefathers. They complain about Him. In fact, once again here, we see that their real view of Jesus is betrayed in their response to Jesus. I mentioned this last week, but note again that their changing view of Jesus throughout this passage. When he fed them on the mountainside, they proclaimed he is a prophet. There's messianic undertones to that. He's, he is like unto Moses. But then when he left, when he didn't let them force him to be king, they come back the next day and they say, Rabbi, teacher, he's downgraded a little bit in their minds. 
And yet now, this morning, not even a day later, but in the same conversation, they don't even believe him as teacher. In fact, they treat him as if he is crazy. Why? What accounts for their changing view of Jesus? Is it that Jesus' message has changed throughout this conversation? Or is it because Jesus is not meeting their expectations? They have expectations. They have plans. But they don't match God's. And because Christ doesn't meet those expectations, they have no time for him. Look what it says. The Jews then complained about him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? How can you make this claim, Jesus? We know your family. And what they think they know about Jesus limits what they are willing to believe. This goes perfectly with what Jesus says in another passage. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. They're not able to see past the kid that they think they know to the Savior that they need who is standing before them and proclaiming the truth. I am the bread of life. No. You're just another kid from Galilee. They're blinded. As we come to verses 43 to 51, then we see Jesus' response to this unbelieving group, this unbelieving crowd. Uh, in fact, the end of this passage, verse 59, tells us exactly where they are at this point. Not only are they in Capernaum, they're in the synagogue in Capernaum. Somehow, this crowd has moved to the synagogue. So it's not just a crowd, but there's religious leaders here, teachers. So verse 43, Jesus, therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. Once again, we see the truth that we've seen all throughout John, that Jesus knows the hearts and the minds of men. Do not murmur among yourselves. Verse 44 is very interesting. See, if, if I were in Jesus' position, at this point, I would have said, you guys don't believe me? How about you go check the records? You know what you'll see? Joseph is not my real dad. You know what else you will see? Go ask my mom. I was born of a virgin. In fact, I'm not from Nazareth. I'm from Bethlehem. In fact, let's go through the Old Testament and let's look at this passage. Oh, look, I fulfilled that. What about this one? Oh, I fulfilled that too. What? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's what I would have done. I would have taken the passage and I would have proved, look, I am who I say I am. You say I'm not because you think you know me? You don't know me. That's not what Jesus does, though. Jesus goes right on teaching. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It ties in perfectly with John 6, 37a which says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus here is continuing his teaching. He's not even skipping a beat. 
The crowd doesn't believe, but that's no excuse. Jesus is going to continue to teach. And when you take John 6, 37a, which says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus' confidence in the, the, the sovereignty and the power of God. And you look at John 6, 44, and no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We see that not only does the Father elect for salvation, but the Father draws sinners to salvation. The passage is very clear. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to Christ on his own. You were not saved because you were morally or spiritually superior to someone else. Brothers and sisters, you were not saved because you were just spiritually more aware than someone else. Because you were smarter. Because you studied harder. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 tells us. Dead men can't move in any direction. You were dead. You were hopeless. The situation that you were in was the situation that you were stuck to be in because you were dead. But God, it is God who chose you. It is God who drew you to himself. It is God who saved you. All in the grace of God alone. And what we see in this passage is that it is God who elects, it is God who draws, and then it is the Son who saves, and the Son who keeps. In fact, we see this phrase once again, I will raise him up on the last day. That's a phrase that Jesus has repeated all throughout this passage, over and over and over and over. This is what the Father does, and this is what I will do. I will raise him up on the last day. Whom the Father draws... The Son saves and the Son keeps. I think after such a strong statement that we have here in John 6.44 on the sovereignty of God and salvation, it's equally important to note that all throughout the book of John, both Jesus and John just as strongly teach the free will of man. It's not a conflict in their minds, and, and we can't wrap our minds around it, but that's okay. We just have to believe it. In fact, just a chapter earlier in John 5, chapter, four, in chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You are not willing. Jesus calls out the religious leaders. And why are they not coming? Because they are not willing. They are responsible for their decision. In fact, just a few verses earlier, in verse 36, in this very crowd, he says, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Whose fault is it that they don't have faith? Is it God's fault? It's their fault. 
It is God who elects. It is God who draws. It's the Son who saves. It's the Son who keeps. And it is you who are guilty. And if you die in your sins, it is your fault. It is not God's fault. In fact, verse 45 goes on to explain this drawing. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Jesus here paraphrasing a passage in Isaiah 54, 13 to explain this drawing by God. Isaiah 54 is looking forward to restore Jerusalem in the kingdom when Christ is reigning. And at this time, when explaining what this will look like, it says that it is God who will teach the children. It's an intimate relationship where God himself is sitting down with them and he himself is teaching them. The idea here is that this drawing is not something that, that, that you are forced into. It's a process as God teaches, as God illumines the truth of his word to you. He is drawing you to himself. In fact, D.A. Carson puts it this way. It's kind of a, 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 one of those quotes that smacks you in the face. It's but it's put very good. It's a very strong quote. When he compels belief, it is not by the savage constraint of a rapist, but the wonderful wooing of a lover. This drawing is not something that is against your will. It's not something that you are forced into. It is the wonderful wooing of a lover. Therefore, he goes on, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who is drawn by the Father will come to the Son. God does not fail to woo, and Christ will not fail to save. But, verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is a very important verse that ties this whole thing kind of together. Well, how, how can God teach me? How can God draw me if I can't see God? Because there's one who has seen God. And that one who has seen God has come to you to reveal God to you. What we see here in verse 46 is that as it is true that no one comes to the Son unless he is drawn by the Father, so it is true that no one comes to the Father unless he believes the Son. And Christ, as Christ will say later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the revelation of the Father to you. Believe me. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes me has everlasting life. Believe me. He goes on in verse 48 to repeat the kind of the central point of this whole passage. I am the bread of life. I am the one who brings life. He returns here in verse 49 to the picture of, of, of manna that they began. 
Last week, as we saw, as they brought up, well, Moses and the manna. So he returns then. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. As God provided manna to sustain physical life, so God has provided his only son to impart spiritual life. In fact, Christ is greater than Moses, and in him God is providing something that is infinitely greater than what he provided in the manna through Moses. He's providing real life, eternal life, salvation. And the bread that I will give, he says at the end of the verse here, is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This passage clearly looks forward to the cross where Christ will satisfy sin's demand by giving his life as a sacrifice. I will give my flesh for the life of the world. I will give my flesh. I will die the death that the world deserves to die. And I will give them my life. On 651, we see the substitutionary or vicarious atonement of Christ in my place. I will give my flesh so that the world can have life. He is the bread of life. He has come to bring life, to sustain, to save, to satisfy, to keep. Come to verse 52, the question is then, all right, well, surely the Jews will believe now, right? Jesus has just very clearly laid this out. He's, he's, he's speaking very strongly. Surely at this point, they will believe. How will they respond? What we see is that they quarrel among themselves. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Once again, the response to Jesus reveals their true view of Jesus. They're not listening to learn or to believe. They're listening to argue, to defend. We're in election season. I guess one of the benefits of coronavirus is there hasn't been as many ads and stuff. It doesn't seem, at least to me. But what's interesting is during election season, whenever politics are up, you have these two sides who are just extremely opposed to each other and could not be further apart. And sometimes it's interesting to watch when someone will give a speech, the side that agrees to them, with them, hears everything they want to hear. And the side that doesn't agree with them, they don't hear anything good. They hear just this person is awful. They want to kill everybody. They, they hate everybody. They hear what they want to hear. 
As I read this passage, that's the sense that I get. They hear what they want to hear. It's very clear that Jesus is talking when he says, bread of life. When he says, I will give my flesh, which I will give the life of the world. He's not really talking, you know, you're going to eat me. He's talking metaphorically. But they're not listening to learn. They're not listening to believe. They're listening to argue. They're listening to defend what they want Jesus to do and who they want Jesus to be. As you come to verses 53 to verse 59, Jesus continues his argument. His, not argument, his response. What's interesting is actually in this passage, Jesus adds fuel to the fire. I don't think it's necessarily that he's sitting there and he's enjoying this. So he's just trying to purposefully be as controversial as he can so he can rile them up. Rather, the point is their inability or refusal to understand the truth is not going to stop Jesus from proclaiming the truth. And so he goes on. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus here keeping this picture of bread as his flesh, as bread. He's keeping it going. In fact, he adds, and you drink my blood. This takes the conversation to a whole new level. Now it's gone from just weird to controversial. Because the idea of consuming blood in any form or fashion would have been abhorrent, even offensive to Jews. They wouldn't have even thought about it or considered it. In fact, it was, it was forbidden in the law of Moses even to eat meat that had blood on it. What are you talking about, drink blood? Don't you know that we're Jews? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus here is talking metaphorically. And verse 54 kind of keys us into that. If you didn't catch on yet that Jesus is talking metaphorically, verse 54 keys us into that. Because verse 47 is almost word for word, except there's a difference. Verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So is Jesus flip-flopping here? He said two different things. He said, you believe on me, you have eternal life, or you eat my flesh and drink my blood and you have eternal life. No. He's saying the same thing. Just one is a picture for the other. He's speaking metaphorically. And this metaphor eating his flesh and drinking his blood is equal to believing in him. Dave Carson, I, I, I know I, I quote him a lot through this. He's written one of the premier commentaries on John, and so I, I go to him a lot. But he says this, Eating the flesh of the Son of Man is a striking metaphorical way of saying that the gift of God's real bread of life is appropriated by faith. 
We must appropriate him into our inmost being. He goes on to say, we are more familiar with this kind of eating metaphor than than we may realize. We devour books. We drink in lectures. We swallow stories. We ruminate on ideas. We chew over matter, etc., etc. What Jesus is saying here is that faith is deeper than surface level. It's not mere mental consent or a matter of obedience, but a full acceptance. A full internalization. To the point of eating and drinking. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me, he who believes in me, will live because of me. He who believes in Christ will be sustained and kept by Christ. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers eat the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Because I am the bread of life, and he who believes in me will have eternal life. It's interesting, these, these verses, verses 53 to 58, are the language is not so striking to us because it's kind of familiar, isn't it? We talk this way when it comes to communion. But I think it's important to note here that the subject of verses 53 to 58 is not communion. It's true that communion is about the truths of John 6, but John 6 is not about communion. That's important to note for a couple reasons. First, communion has not yet been established. It would make no sense for Christ to speak of something which no one there would understand or comprehend. Secondly, and even more importantly, if this passage is about communion, then it contrasts the rest of Scripture and teaches that communion is necessary for salvation. Look at verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has what? Eternal life. That, if it's speaking of communion, raises communion to the point of saving. This language is familiar to us, and and it is true that communion is about the truths of John 6. As we look to his body that was broken for us, his blood that was spilt for us, his substitutionary atonement, what he has done for us. And we remember that and we meditate on that. But don't get confused that John 6, 53 to 58 is about communion. Because that can very quickly become dangerous. Not only that, but uh, many in Catholic theology will look at this passage and use it to support transubstantiation. Which is the belief 
that in communion, the elements literally somehow become the flesh and the blood of Christ. They would look at this passage and they would read this passage literally. Whereas it's very clear from the context that Christ is speaking figuratively. He's speaking metaphorically. And the point is this. Believe me. Not on some surface level. Not just enough to follow me because you're interested in me. Rather, saving faith is deep. It is full acceptance, total surrender. It is internalization. And so, believe me. In fact, as you come to the point of application, as we come to the end of this message, that is the main point of application, that you would believe. That you would place your faith in Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, who gave his flesh for the life of the world. Who died in your place, who took your punishment, who took your death, so that you may live. Not because you're a good person. Not because you're better than the person next to you. But because you believe. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you have done or can do. It's about what Christ has done for you. And the only question is, will you believe? And if you have not believed, then even this morning, won't you come forward? Even as, as we close in just a second and we sing the song, I Stand Redeemed. That word means I stand as someone who has been saved. I stand as someone who has placed my faith in Christ, who has been bought back, who has had their sins paid for by Christ. I stand redeemed. If you cannot confidently sing that song and make that statement this morning, if you have any questions in your mind, come forward and I will take you aside and I would love to take the word of God and to answer those questions. Believer, as those who are in Christ, I think we come away from this passage encouraged. Because time and time again, not just through our passage this morning, but throughout Christ's entire speech on the bread of life, he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. Time and time again, he says that. I, I, didn't, I should have gone through and counted. But it has to be at least five times he says that. I will raise him up on the last day. It is sure. It is guaranteed. Those whom God has elected, those whom God has uh, drawn, Christ has saved, and Christ will raise. He will keep. Not only that, but he will sustain you. And so, believer, be encouraged. Even as we saw this morning in Sunday school, if you were not here, we're going through 2 Corinthians. Jim is doing an excellent job of taking us through that. I encourage you to come to Sunday school. But even this morning, we saw that. That God sustains. That God keeps. That whatever we are facing in this life, it is for God's purposes. And it does not even measure up to the glory which is to come. Because God is accomplishing his purpose in you. 
and Christ will keep you, and there is nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you are in Christ, if you're not even sure what that means, if we are singing the song, I Stand Redeemed, and you have questions, what does that mean? Come forward and have that same assurance that we have in Christ. Come forward and find the answers that you're looking for.